Chapter 11 of The Blue Star by Fletcher Pratt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Blue Star. Chapter 11. Kazmurga. Two Against a World. Matherin entered on his almost soundless feet and let the door close behind him in the dark before saying, Rodvard, softly. Rodvard, who had been letting his mind drift along endless alleys rather than thinking, swung himself up. I will make a light. Do not. There is danger enough, and its point would so be sharpened. Do not even speak aloud. What is it? The Duke of Agramon's. His bravos are let loose. No time. I only just now learned it from the Count. Outside there was the soft sighing of rain. I am to go? At once. Make your way south, to the center of Sedid Mir. The contact is a wool-dealer named Stundert, in the second Dock Street. Can you remember? Change clothes with me quickly. Do not even take the door, which is watched, but go by the window, across the road, and south into the country." The serving-man began to undress in the dark. Rodvard recognized the sound. "'Is there any money?' he asked. The rustling stopped. "'You to need money who have the blue star?' Even under the dark, Rodvard felt himself flush. Did he dare tell what had happened? No. "'Still, I will need some small amount. I have nothing.' Even under his breath, Rodvard could catch the fury in the other's tone. "'Ah, you deserve to have your bones broken.' "'I know, but is there any money?' Rodvard fumbled for the unfamiliar lace points. The man snarled, but pressed a few coins into his grasp. "'You are to regard this as a loan. Cludy sends it.' "'Oh, you did not tell me he was aiding this escape.' He wants you to go south to Trichulaca, and gave me a letter for you to carry, which I will transit to the high center. It might be a girl's light tap at the door. Go, whispered Matherin fiercely. The window swung wide. Rodvard felt rain on his face, and the mud of the flower bed squished round Matherin's soft shoes as he took the leap down. A light flamed up in the room behind him. He began to run, stumbling up the terraces with branches snatching at his body, zigzagging to avoid the pennon of light. A voice shouted across the rain after him, and he thought Matherin was a mighty bold fellow to face the Duke of Agramon's assassins back there. He came against a hedge. There was another shout and the sound of crashing footsteps from the left, in which direction the hedge ran. No way to turn and he stumbled over a root, prone to roll beneath the lip of the shrubbery, thinking concealment might be a better resource than speed. So it was. Shout echoed shout with an accent of lost. Footsteps went past, but apparently no one had a light, and before one could be brought, Rodvard rolled out and began to work cautiously toward the end of the hedge, bending double. The bushes turned back to enclose a square of garden, but there was a locked gate low enough to be climbed. Over, the gravel path beyond, for a wonder, did not run circular like most, from which he deduced that it must be the one leading down from the main road. It offered the only real clue to direction, 
for the lights had winked out back there, the villa's mass and trees had cut off the nightshine from the bay, and the slope was no help at all with everything so gardened. Rodvard pushed forward cautiously. Presently the feel of ruts under his feet told him his reasoning was sound, and he paused to consider whether along the road or across it. The second alternative one. If agreements were so in earnest, his people would not give up easily, and they would likely spread along the road. There was no hedge at the opposite side, but a narrow ditch, in which Rodvard got one leg well wetted to the knee and almost fell. Beyond a slope pitched upward into what, as nearly as he could make out by feeling, would be a sapling grove with low underbrush. Having no cloak, he was by this time so wet that it did not matter when he stumbled against small trunks, and the leaves just bursting above deluged him with big drops, but the sensation was so unpleasant that it tipped him into a despairing mood, where his fatigues of the night and day rolled in, and he began to ask himself whether all pleasures must end in an escape of some kind. So he followed the pent of the hill blindly, not thinking at all of where he was going, but only of how he was trapped by unfairnesses somewhere, and that it could not be altogether a matter of man's justice, which was the plainder of the sons of the new day, since no justice of man's would hold men from fiery passion. Beyond an easy crest there was a dip, and Rodvard hurt his knee against a wall of piled stone. In the field beyond he could sense under his feet the stumps of last year's corn, he was sick with weariness and fear, and had begun to sneeze. There was no light or life in the world. What direction? With no reason for any, he followed the line of the stone wall for a little time, and it brought him ultimately to a sodden straw-stack, whose hard surface yielded just enough to the persistence of his fingers so that he could get the upper half of his body in and slide down into unhappy sleep. 2. He woke with a headache at the top of his spine, which ran around inside his head to the place over his eyes, nose feeling as though driven with a wooden plug. Matherin's decent black clothes were horribly stained and scratched. Down the way he had come, not at all far where he had crossed the wall, now that one could see by the light of morning, the footprints lay, a finger-length deep into the soft ground. At once he was oppressed by the thought that only too easily could his path from the villa be traced. There was Tuolan's witch behind as well, and fear mounting over the illness, he climbed to the wall itself and tried to walk along its top to hide his marks. After the rain, sky and air had become clear, and there were violets visible in the grove side of the wall, not that they did him any joy in his misery. The stones quickly tore a hole in shoes made for indoor walking, so he had to jump down again and consider. Right across his direction, at a little distance, there jutted out from the stone wall a hedge which lack of care had let grown into a screen of low, sprawling trees. It slanted down leftward to where a gap would mark a field entrance. Beyond, a slow trickle of smoke ran up the blue to signal breakfast. Rodvard, deciding what he would do if he were hunter instead of hunted, found more than good the argument against harborage so near the villa. He climbed over the wall again to wipe his streaming nose on a burdock leaf, whose bitter juice stung his lips, and perceiving that he left less marked traces in the ground on that side, stayed. 
the overgrown hedge proved to line a deep-cut track that in one direction wound down toward the main road past the villa. Beyond that track was true forest of old trunks and heavy underbrush. It was surely a good place to seek concealment, but Rodvard was ignorant of how far it might run or what it led to, and with illness galloping through his veins felt he must have shelter early, so, murmuring half aloud to himself that he might as well die in hot blood as in cold room, he turned up the track toward the cottage smoke. The building was more prosperous than most in the country, with a barn outside and two complete windows under the thatch edge. No one answered his knock. As he pushed open the door, a child's squall was sounding with irritable monotony from a trundle-bed on the right and a woman who had been doing something at a table before the fireplace on the left turned to face him. She was bent and dirty. Her face was older than her figure. "'What do you want?' she demanded. "'A place to rest, if I can,' said Rodvard. "'And perhaps something to eat.' He crossed the room and came down weak-kneed on a stool by the fireplace corner. The lined face held no sympathy as her eyes swept down the detail of his torn, mud-stained clothes and lingered for a tick at the servant's badge on his breast. "'This is not an inn,' she said sourly. "'Madam, I am unwell. I can pay.' He fumbled at the waist-pouch. "'This is not an inn,' she repeated then spun on her heel, took rapid steps to where the child in its bed still bawled, and administered it a severe clout on the side of the head. "'Will you be quiet?' The cry sank to whimpers. She came to stand looking down at Rodvard. "'I know about your kind,' she said. "'You're too lazy to work, so you run away from a good master down there at the villa and probably rob him, too, on festival day when he's drunk.' and then expect honest country people like us, who have to labor for everything we get, to hide you from the provosts. My husband and me, we have to get up at dawn and work all day as hard as we can, and we're never through till the sun goes down, winter or summer, while you servant people are drinking and stealing behind your master's back." All this was delivered in a torrent, as though it were a single sentence, ending as she uplifted one arm to brandish an imaginary weapon. Now, you leave here." Too weary and ill for a reply, a trickle he did not try to disguise running from his nostril, Rodvard did so, out into the bright spring day and along the track. Where it turned round a boss of hill that thrust in from the westward, a sense of being watched made him look back. The farm-wife had come out to the end of the house to look after him, and the sound of the child's petulant wail was on the air. Rodvard felt a surge of bitter anger. There was an unfairness in life. Every pennyweight of pleasure is paid with double its measure in pain, and only those who grubbed at the ground were entitled to call themselves honest. Why, if this be so, then joy must be wrong, and God himself must be evil, in spite of what the priests say but his head was too muzzy to follow any rabbit of reasoning to its hole, so he trudged along for a while without thinking anything at all, until he heard the creak of a cart, and here was a mule coming out from the Cedad Vic's direction. The driver somewhat surlily gave him the time of day. Rodvard asked to go with him, 
and when the man said he was bound for Kazmurga, declared that was his destination, though he had never heard of the place and possessed not the least idea in what direction it lay. The fellow grunted and let him climb in, sat silent for a while as Rodvard sneezed and drizzled, then was moved to remark that this was a heavy case of the phlegm, but it could be cured by an infusion of dandelion root with certain drugs, such as his old woman made, and so well that they often accused her of being a witch. But the drugs are costly now. He evidently wanted conversation and payment for his favor, and when this beginning failed, on Rodvard's merely remarking that he would pay for any quantity of drugs to get rid of this room, fell silent for a couple of minutes, then leaned over, touched the servant's badge, and struck out again with, "'Running away, eh? What happened, eh? Lying with wrong woman on festival night, perhaps? Ah, there's many and many a high family has daughters born nine months from festival night that shouldn't rightly inherit. But, Lord, young man, don't you run away because of that. I say to you that ladies can forgive and be forgive for everything they do that night, when all's free, and I say to you, you ought to go back to your master.' He chuckled and waved his mule-goad. "'I do recall, I do, when I was a sprout no older than yourself, how one night I went all the way to Mass John for spring festival, and at the dancing at the square there, I found a little cat as hot as ever could be, so we slipped away for some conversation, eh? And when I got back to where I was staying with a friend, what do you think I found? Why, in my bed there was his sister, Federa, that was her name, and she was saying she had thought the bed her own, and no more clothes on her than a fish. So there were two of them in one night, all I could do. <laughs> and that's the way it always is at Spring Festival, and maybe it would be with you. He looked at Rodvard, and the latter was glad for once that the blue star had gone dumb over his heart, for there was a drop of moisture on the lip above the ill-shaven chin, which the gaffer did not bother to suck in or to wipe away. It was nothing like that, said he, and to keep from being drawn deeper into the morass of the old fellow's thinking. Have you heard that Baron Brunovar is like to be decreed an accusation? Eh, hey, hey, those Westerners, half-myers they are. It will be a sad day when the snow melts from Her Majesty's head, with only the regents being that crazy Pavinius and the throne and no female heirs. Eh, hey, eh. Hey. Here we are in the Marquis of de Chéry's seigneury. For you servant-class it is no matter. You lay out the plates on the table, and you have a Scuderius in your hand. But for us farm-people, with all the taxes—' "'I am not a servant,' Rodvard wanted to cry, "'but a clerk who makes his gain as hard as you. And it is you we most wish to help.' But he forbore, saying only, "'Is there an inn at Kazmurga? I need something to eat, being without breakfast, and a place to lie down for the cure of my fluxions. No tavern, the man stopped, and the expression above the uncut whisker became crafty, so that now Rodvard longed for the blue star. Would you pay an innkeeper? Why, yes, I have a little money. You be letting me take you to my home. The old woman will arrange your fluxions in less than a minute, with her specific, if you can pay for it, and give all else you need for less than half what an innkeeper would ask, and no questions if the provosts come nosing, eh? Go, Marinelle! 
He leaned forward and rammed the goat into the mule's rump, which shook its ears, danced a little with the hind feet, and began to trot, so that Rodvard's aching head jounced agonizingly. There was a turn, the track was broadening, fields showed, pigs rooted contentedly in a ditch, and the trees gave back to show a church with its half-moon symbol at the peak, and around it, like the spoke of a wheel, houses. Kazmurga, said the mule-man. I live on the other side. 3. She was fat, and one eye looked off at the wrong angle, but Rodvard was in a state not to care if she had worn on her brow the mark of evil. He flopped on the straw bed. There was only one window, at the other end. The couple whispered under it, after which the housewife set a pot on the fire. Rodvard saw a big striped cat that marched back and forth, back and forth, beside the straw bed, and it gave him a sense of nameless unease. The woman paid no attention, only stirring the pot as she cast in an herb or two, and muttering to herself. Curtains came down his eyes, though not that precisely, neither. He lay in a kind of suspension of life, while the steam of the pot seemed to spread toward filling the room. Time hung. Then the potion must be ready, for through half-closed lids Rodvard could see her lurch toward him in a manner somewhat odd. Yet it was not till she reached the very side of the bed and lifted his head in the crook of one arm, while pressing toward his lips the small earthen bowl, that a tired mind realized he should not from his position have been able to see her at all. A mystery. The pendulous face opened on gapped teeth. "'Take it now, my pretty boy, take it!' The liquid was hot and very bitter on the lips, but as the first drops touched Rodvard's tongue, the cat in the background emitted a scream that cut a rusty saw. The woman jerked violently, spilling the stuff so it scalded him all down chin and chest as she let go. She swung round, squawking something that sounded like posexus at the animal. Rodvard struggled desperately as in a nightmare, unable to move a muscle no more than if he had been carved out of stone, realizing horribly that he had been bewitched. He wanted to vomit, and he could not. The cottage wife turned back toward him with an expression little beautiful. Her grubby hands were shaking a little. She grumbled under her breath as he felt her detach the bell-pouch with all his money and then slip off his shoes. The jacket came next, but as she undid the laces at the top, grunting and puffing, her hand touched the chain that held the blue star, and she jerked out the jewel. In all his immobility Rodvard's every perception had become as painfully sharp as an edge of broken ice. He thought she was going to have a fit. Her features seemed to twist and melt into each other. Her hand came away from the stone as though it had been a red coal. "'Oh, no, 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 no!' she squealed, backing away. "'No, no, no! Ah, you were right, Tigret! You were right to stop me!' the cat arched against her. As though the small act had released some spring in herself, the woman bustled to the invisible end of the room, where Rodvard could hear wood click on earthenware, then some kind of a dumb, low-toned chant she raised, then became aware of a different and aromatic odor. He was wide awake now, and hardly sick at all any more. He could see how the mist in the room was clearing a little, then heard the door creak open and the mule-driver's voice saying, "'Did you get it done, eh?' 
not I, you old fool, you rat-pudding, you dog-bait. Old fool yourself. Rodvard heard the sound of a slap. Call me an old fool. You weren't so dainty with the last one. Taken with a pretty lad, are you? Now go do it, or I'll slice his throat myself and never mind mess. What's one runaway servant more or less, eh? This is real money, hard money, more nor you ever seen. Now she was whimpering. I tell you, you're a fool. He has a blue star, a blue star, and his witch will know what's put on him and record it back to us double, triple. Worms that never die crawling under your skin till you perish of it. All the hard money there is is not worth it. A sound of steps. The scratchy face looked down at Rodvard. He felt the man palm the jewel. Blue star, eh? Ah, Fritzus, this is some piece of glass. But the tone was little sure. It's a blue star, and nothing else, the second one I see. They're wedded with the great wedding. The man turned, and though his own head did not, Rodvard could see how the expression of craftiness had come on back to him. Blue star? Now you witch it for him, wife, witch it for him, so it will no longer good. You can witch anything, then I'll take him away from here. The whimper became a sniffle. I'll witch, ah, I'll witch, mumble, mumble, mumble. Rodvard heard her tottering shuffle go and come. The fat face was over his again, all filled now with oily kinks that held little beads of sweat. She looked at him closely, and then flung over her shoulder, "'Go out, old man, and leave us. There's something not healthy for you to see.' And began plucking at her garments to undo them, at the last moment pausing to throw an edge of stinking blanket over Rodvard's face. His heightened senses caught the stiff rustle of clothes sinking to the floor. The aromatic smell declared itself over all others. Her fingers sought his burned chin beneath the blanket and applied a relieving unguent. Mumble, mumble, came her voice, and he understanding not a word. Meow, shouted the cat as it raced through the narrow cot from end to end. He could have melted with relief as the fingers soothed his chest, but then his mind went off on a picture of Lalette become old in the manner of this one and he would have shuddered if he could have stirred. The crooning mumble ended, the witch-wife's ministrations at the same time. There was a silence set with small sounds, over which the continued mewling of the cat. He heard the woman at the door summon her husband, then the two of them speaking in voiceless sibilance, a contention going on, which terminated with the man's strong arms around Rodvard, heaving him up like a sack of meal. Exterior air came through the edge of the blanket. Step, step, he was borne, and with a grunt, dumped in what must be the mule cart. A pause. The blanket was twitched from his face, and he was looking up into the desperate eyes of the woman. "'Nice boy, nice boy,' said her voice. "'You tell your witch now how I do good. You tell her I respect the great wedding. Not him. He keeps your hard money.' She patted his still unmoving cheek, a touch that made his senses creep, and the blue star was suddenly, shockingly cold over his heart. He could see beyond any question that there was in the woman's mind a great fear, but also the great longing kindness of two joined against an armed world. 
From where he was leading the mule to hitching, the man's voice came. "'Wife, get that badge we took from the last one, the mechanician. I say to you, you hurry now.'" End of chapter 12